Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Bald Move Television podcast. We're the officially unofficial podcast for all of television. I'm your host, Aaron. And I'm Jim. And this Monday, we are continuing our journey through Matthew Weiner's The Romanovs. This was episode four, Expectation. Jim, I was excited about this episode because I really love Amanda Peet. I really love uh, John Slattery. Uh, what did you think of this episode? Uh, I thought it was pretty engaging for the most part. Um, th- there are a couple of scenes that really fell flat to me because I think of the format of this show. But for the most part, yeah, I I found myself pretty engaged, especially by the performance from Amanda Peet. I thought she was actually really good. Uh, her character, it, it's, I guess, tough for me to relate to her character, but a lot of the, the ways they tell this story really helps me understand where she's coming from. Uh, and same for John Slattery's character of, I think, Daniel is his name in this. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I found that story pretty engaging. Uh, I, t- it's, it's interesting because, for me, this episode is where the wheels of the show completely fell off. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, I've seen Amanda Peet play unlikable characters before, like mm-hmm. a Saving Silverman, but it, there's always been, like, uh, a comic sensibility to it. Maybe it's because this is just another instance of Matthew Weiner playing the genre conventions, but I felt like a lot of this stuff was shot and scripted as a comedy, but mm-hmm. everyone, it, it has the sensibilities of the of a drama, or if it is supposed to be funny, I just wasn't laughing. So it just, yes, Amanda Peet did an excellent job of playing a fundamentally unlikable character, uh, but that, to me is not enough the only thing i liked about this episode it was just barely over an hour so because i was looking at the one third mark i'm like oh my god i can't believe it's gonna be and then i noticed that there's only 30 minutes left i'm like oh okay uh <laughs> well that doesn't say anything good uh, no no about the that's a, for like, sure. like i and i i hated this and i thought it was like just judging from the other reviews it's gotten i was going to go online and find like a near universal panning but i find that there is a lot of people really liking the things going on in this episode so i guess maybe this is for a particular type of person that speaks to a particular type of person, or it speaks to something that Matthew Weiner wants to say that I'm just not getting because, um, I mean, I I guess I'm really glad that you liked it because that'll be an interesting conversation. (laughs) Before we get too much further in the episode, I want to talk about some things that are going on here at baldmove.com. But first of national interest, if you're an American, we have an election next week, next Tuesday, November 6th, that's coming up. And just like we encourage everyone to register to vote in the months leading up to it, like to obviously encourage everyone to participate. Uh, if you're looking for a good nonpartisan voters guide, you can find one at vote411.org. Uh, they have uh, ballots for every race across the country, uh, and they've got interviews with the, can- the candidates each position. And you can print out your own ballot and take it to the polls. So you can be organized about it if you'd like to, but. Uh, it's, it's, it's very important. Obviously people have fought and died for our right and our privilege to do so. So please participate in democracy this next Tuesday. Also season of the cage blew in hard and fast at baldmove.com. That is That's our a hard and fast turn of topics, but yes, that, season of the is. cage is upon us. It is. Uh, it, it's, it's our, it's our first in a series of super serious film fests where we do an in-depth look at a particular actor or series of movies. This is season of the cage talking about the best of his mo- movies and the worst of his movies. We're on the uphill stretch, uh, right now this week, last week we talked about the rock this week, uh, a more dramatic turn in the weatherman, 
so we've got uh, live watches. We've got in-depth podcasts. We've got our attempts to rewrite a sequel or prequel uh, of The Weatherman. Uh, all that is on baldmove.com. We also are considering Deduce on Tuesday. We got another episode or two of that left. Cecil and I are considering American Horror Story on Wednesday nights of the Instant Take and a Feedback Fridays uh, the Friday after that. And last uh, and probably least, uh, remind everyone that pre-sales of my book, God of Thrones, a book about the religions of Westeros and Game of Thrones, is, co- is, is coming out October or November 1st. And you can actually pre-sale it on Amazon right now. There'll be a link in the podcast for that. And if you're a Game of Thrones fan in general, George Martin's coming out with a book later this month, Fire and Blood, and I'm going to be blown off the dust of the Game of Thrones feed. I've got some podcasters that are going to do guest spots with me. I'm going to be doing some segments with Anthony, my co-author of uh, Gods of Thrones, and it should be a lot of fun. So check out the the Game of Thrones podcast feed on baldmove.com. Yeah, I mean, the part that you just explained about, you know, this essentially feeling like a comedy and also this very serious dramatic thing at the same time, I feel like that is what Matthew Weiner got away with a lot of the time on Mad Men, yep. that the format here really lets him down on. Uh, he he simply can't do the same things that he did in Mad Men with the, the, the moments that stand out to me in this episode as awkward and not making much sense are like that first conversation with her daughter where she's they're right. screaming back and forth. I don't know who these people are. Why do I care? Yes. Uh, none of this history that you have with like Mad Men characters that is so firmly baked into their foundations uh, comes through here. Yeah. Cause, cause you don't have it. Right. So you right. can't do the same things. And I feel like he's trying to use those tricks. Uh, the other scene is the outburst in the car, which I think is supposed to be comedy, mm-hmm. but it doesn't really come across as that to me. So I think we have some some of the same problems. I guess I just found the core story more engaging. You're, maybe that's the entire premise because, like, the whole time, I guess I'm trying to judge like whether people are, you know, behaving in appropriate ways, ways that are out of their character. Like, if this is a fundamentally good person that's acting crazy and bizarrely because they're under a lot of stress. Like, I think you're supposed to understand that, but I didn't get a baseline. So, like, everyone kind of read awful. Like. Like, mm-hmm. you're right. This this mother and daughter are having this fight, and the one mother is scolding her daughter for, you know, living a conventional lifestyle, and the mother, the daughter's shouting back, oh, you're just in a feminist socialist rage. And I'm like, in a vacuum, what the hell? How do you, how do you score that? Who's winning? Who's losing? Yeah. Uh, is this, does this woman's lifestyle, like, are their husband really, like, good? Or is it, like, she's, like, I, I, I had no frame of reference. And, like, as the episode continued to went, there's a couple things I thought were interesting that it did. Like, I really liked the wordless fight that uh, John Slattery and Amanda Peet as Juliet and Daniel had in that bookstore. Yeah, the uh, one that got, they keep revisiting throughout the episode. But then you, you just hit on my complaint. That, like, I thought that's like, huh. Like, we've seen a million of these fights, and they're always fundamentally unfair and self-serving to each side. It's kind of an interesting choice to just show the fight and other people's reactions, and it's relatively inappropriateness in the place of a bookstore. And then when they kept coming back and filling that fight in, I thought, like, well, shit, that was the one interesting idea that this episode uh, played with, (laughs) and now they're kind of throwing it away. Because, I mean, broadly speaking, this is about 
a middle-aged person feeling like as they are supposed to be ascending to some master of the universe or having some kind of like real control over their life, they're realizing their children are adults and they're doing things differently and making mistakes that they wouldn't make. But then the episode is always there to remind us, well... Also, she made a mistake a long time ago that could threaten to destroy her entire life. And then at the end, it kind of asks us, but really would it de- destroy her life? Because, mm-hmm. like, look at they, 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 they have Amanda Peet just, just ludicrous freaking out about a minor surgery and how she might die before she meets a grandchild, which admittedly is always a chance anytime you go in her general. It's like everything she's saying is true, but it's just silly, silly catastrophizing. Um, but I don't know. So like, is having an affair and raising an illegitimate daughter to think that like, is that, is that a minor mistake? Uh, like, uh, obsessing about general anesthesia or worrying if your daughter's not a good enough feminist, or is it like a really big fucking life altering thing that maybe you should have a little bit of, uh, you you didn't know like, like dread and terror that your life is built upon this, this central lie. I, I don't know. Yeah, I thought like so many of the things that you mentioned, the the more minor of the mistakes were mm-hmm. kind of the the maelstrom around this nexus of, you know, the mistake she made so long ago and the mistake she's continuing to make by lying about it. Because I, I think you're right at the end, we're supposed to think, would this actually destroy her life? I mean, it would change her life dramatically, potentially, right. Um, right. depending on how Eric reacts to it. Uh, but it's... Is that a destruction of her life, or is that just a transformation of her life, right? And if her daughter already right. knows, how much easier does that make it? Right. Uh, and I guess the end of the episode also encourages you to ask, is it even important to do at this point? Mm-hmm. You know, and I don't, it's, I, this this but, amazing, what I thought was an amazing scene in The Confession mm-hmm. uh, that was a fantasy. It never actually happened. Which, oh my God, I hate it so much. <laughs> I figured you probably would. I, I found myself going, oh, Really? Really, they're going to do this to us. Uh, uh-huh. But th- that scene was was probably the best of the episode, uh, in my opinion. And then it questions like, "Well, is is that is that necessary at this point? Do you need to go to Eric? Do you need to say, hey, uh, you know, I've been living with this lie forever, or do you need to just let it lie because the the daughter knows?" Well, I mean, yeah, like, uh, so the problem with that scene for me is that all of the sympathy is for essentially Juliet and Daniel and maybe a little for the daughter, but there's none for the husband who's been living this lie this whole time, right? And has has no Mm -hmm. awareness of it. And, you know, Amanda Peet's character is coming forward with the truth because she is worried about her ex-lover's feelings because this has nothing to do with her daughter who we find out i think you know that's something i want to ask you about it's clearly you believe that she does know uh like like we think that her daughter's known all along maybe her husband's in the dark maybe he kind of knows and is just overlooking at it but like to me this feels like uh you know this gallstone that she's got inside of her and she needs to get it out not because it's going to make everybody else's life better but because it'll make her feel better Mm-hmm. and yeah. that's kind of shitty but also like to expect like 
will this destroy her life or not? Again, I don't have enough information. Like, is her husband completely supporting her and allowing her to fuck around at the homeless shelter so she feels fulfilled and she has no way of sustaining herself? Because, yeah, if he throws her out and gets a divorce, then maybe that would ruin her life. Well, I mean, but, then she, go- she goes with Daniel, who they're clearly still in sure, love. yeah. Uh, and, he's, and he's a successful <laughs> Romanoff historian, apparently, and author. Right. Uh, right. So, no, I don't think it's going to, like, devastate her in that kind of way, but it'll change but, things. Yeah, but then he throws his wife over, and what's she got? It's like, it's like it's, it's kind of like this uh, talk about this cascading loss of control she has. Like, I think there's a but But, yeah, like, again, I, I didn't, there wasn't enough information. This is too big of a story to tell in 60 minutes, I feel like. To <laughs> Which is actually, funny. Yeah, to kind of. Yeah, to kind of keep score, like try to figure out, like, was this right? Is this good? Is this is this wrong? Is this moral? Is this ethical? Yeah, here's the uh, thing. I'm not trying to keep score in this episode, though. This is a tale yeah. of a woman who is dealing with a secret that she has kept for 20 years. Right. And, and it's like, I'm not looking to say, oh, she's right or wrong by doing this. Just how it affects her, how much better she feels when somebody knows her secret, when she doesn't have to hold on to that just by herself. Uh, those are the kinds of things I'm thinking as I'm watching this episode. Not like, oh, uh, who's winning here? You know, because mm-hmm. nobody's winning. Everybody's fucking losing. But does everybody have to continue to lose? I guess is the question. Hmm. I mean, I might have chosen a, my words poorly when I said keeping score. I guess what I'm saying is like they feel grounded in the narrative and understanding the stakes mm-hmm. uh, because they're. Is is just a I don't know just a lot of gauzy stuff I don't identify with here. Um, yeah, I, yeah. I just yeah. I, I I guess that's the other problem is that Amanda Peet's characterization. Like I don't know of any. I don't know. I I I guess I she doesn't seem like a real character to me. Hmm. Like she's just this mass of contradictions. Um, I don't know. I don't. Yeah, I, I well, don't know. She she felt like me to to me like a woman who was searching for some kind of absolution from her sins, right? And the one thing that she couldn't do would was the only thing that would ever give her any kind of peace, which is to tell somebody, to tell her husband, to tell her daughter, to tell somebody what's been going on. And her search for that was this episode. And it finally comes down to the gallstone thing. Yeah. But when you say the one thing she couldn't do, I again, I, I I don't understand why she couldn't do that. Like, why was that such a scary decision? I mean, it just, it always felt like, it always felt like a purely selfish decision. Um, sure. No, I, I won't argue with that. I'm okay. I'm simply saying it's, it's a very, very hard thing to do to come clean yeah. to someone like that yeah. uh, w- with this thing that's been festering for 20 years. Right. Uh, so I, I, I'm surprised you can't understand a struggle like that. I mean, I guess I can't understand a struggle. Like I, why uh, you're saying, I mean, if you're saying like all healthy people should easily have no problem coming clean. Yes. But she's not healthy. It's clear that she's not healthy, but I don't understand. Like, I, I don't understand her struggle. Like, I guess that that's the thing hmm. is like, this is a woman who is ex- like has literally it all she could do any million things uh from here by coming clean and removing this stain from her family and moving forward and she's not trapped in a a abusive relationship she's not trapped in a like a high pressure job that she couldn't just walk away from she's not 
you know, her her child's not addicted to drugs or in a, a dangerous relationship. Uh, she's just like it just felt like it felt like an attractive middle aged woman dealing with being old. And maybe I'm just not empathetic to that. And, and that's a, that's a problem with me. Or maybe the storytelling. It's, it's like like, you, you know, it's like Don Draper is a very difficult story to tell. Because they made us love him because of how smooth, attractive, and put together he was before they took him apart. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I feel like Amanda Pete, I was coming into a third season Don Draper losing a shit episode without any esteem for the character. In fact, yeah. the first scenes of the character is her acting like a crazy person to in public to her, to her daughter and to... You know, uh, to to the cab driver, like she just uh, to these people that like she was busy talking on the phone and she was obviously there alone and they took her chair and she turns it into this big thing about millennials. And I, I don't know. It's like <laughs> right. I, maybe it's that like if I knew Matthew Weiner, I wouldn't like him. But I th- that that seems way too uh, that just seems way to me trying to uh, understand my subjective reaction to this story. Uh, and take it out on the creator rather than just being like, eh, wasn't for me. Yeah, I, Which, I mean, I felt you certainly at the beginning of this episode. I didn't like Amanda Pete. I didn't like her introduction. I didn't know enough about her to care. Uh, um, but I did feel by the end that I understood, like, the reason she doesn't come clean about this stuff is not for so many of the reasons you mentioned, but because she'd have to hurt somebody who she loves. Because I think she loves Eric, right? Like, there's this line... When is it? Um... Sometime in the bookstore where Amanda Pete says to John Slattery, like, I like you something like basically you're not Eric, which is both the reason I was with you and the reason I can't be with you long term. Mm. So, like, I I do think she loves Eric. It's just she doesn't want to hurt him. So she can't tell him she doesn't want to hurt her daughter. So she can't tell her daughter. And by the end, you know, she doesn't have to at least tell her daughter. But that's that's kind of what I thought was driving her is her desire not to hurt someone she loves which is a sympathetic thing yeah i guess but on the other hand i don't know like it's a whole i don't know it's it there's a lot of complicated because i do believe that you shouldn't have extramarital affairs uh, if you'd have <laughs> uh-huh. extramarital affair just 20 years in your past i kind of think it's a it's a dick move to bring it up just because it's it's personally it's 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 got you in in anguish i know? mean with the complication of the daughter yeah, that's right. And this right. coming granddaughter. Yeah, you know, um, and then like again, there's like trying to sell me on the story of like Daniel and like feeling sorry for him because he's left. He got he missed out on this relationship with his daughter or whatever. And he's just a creepy uncle. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know. It feels like there is a lot. It, you know, I, I guess that's the thing. It's a, it, it just felt like a whole episode of complaining about people's lot in life when they were the architect of that life and that lot. Yeah, you know, I there was nothing. There was nothing in 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 writing that made Daniel stick around New York and literally hover around his family and be the creepy uncle. You know, he betrayed his best friend. He fathered his best friend's uh, daughter, and then he could have just like, okay, well, this is fucked. Uh, I'm I'm going to exit, but like he chose to keep torturing himself in that way and the mm-hmm. same way that julia chose to f- structure her family this way rather than be like well i uh, you know let's uh, i committed inf- uh, uh, infidelity and i yeah I, I i do think that there's something to 
now that I've thought about it, that just there was nothing for me to like look at Julia and be like, well, this is something admirable. I mean, I guess the fact that she sticks with her mission at the home uh, at the at the uh, homeless shelter and despite of like being attacked and it turned into just a massive, uh, you know, reactionary asshole about well, these people are savages because I got attacked once like that's kind of admirable. But uh, yeah, I also don't quite. I look at that and I go, hmm, what are her motivations here? Uh-huh. Is she trying to do something good for the sake of doing something good? Or is she trying to make herself feel exactly. better about the person she is? Right. I can't be a bad person. I volunteer at the home or I'm the director of the homeless shelter. And I look at how much stuff I do. Right. Uh, yeah. I mean, that's that's uh, honestly, that's a bitch about altruism in general, because doing good makes you feel good. So is anything altruistic? And then you've, you know, there's stuff that's clearly self-serving, but it still does good. So is that altruistic? I, I don't know. It's, it's really hard to keep score when you, when you're, you're talking about like at the societal level, but, uh, yeah, those are a lot of the conundrums and, and maybe I'm supposed to, maybe that's part of the art. I'm supposed to feel confused and conflicted about this and, and hold it up as a mirror to my own life. And, you know, cause there's a lot of also her mother tra- or, or Julia, Julia Pete, Amanda Pete, Julia, Juliet. She's trafficking in a lot of hard and fast rules. You know, like she she has these things for her daughter that her daughter is not checking off all these boxes of what she thinks is, you know, a responsible citizen of the world. Mm-hmm. And she's also there's the rule that you never close the door. And there's all these other rules that she breaks in big ways. Uh, there's also the rule of, uh, you know, you shouldn't cheat on your husband. <laughs> um, with, uh, with especially with something messy as his best friend, uh, and she f- violates all these rules, but yet simultaneously thinks that she's living a good life mm-hmm. because it's the life that she wants her. Whereas, obviously, you know, if her daughter just breezily came into that brunch and been like, "Well, you know, yeah, sure, he's an air, he's in Singapore, but of course, I'm fucking his best friend. It's right here, and he's the fa- <laughs> he's actually the father. It's okay, mother, you'll be fine." I mean, if he right. would go thermonuclear, right? Uh, because it's scary that her daughter is doing like the fact that the real in the real world adults that's part of being an adult is knowing when it's okay to break a rule or making that decision for yourself mm -hmm. uh that's civil disobedience that's speeding that's doing drugs that's premarital sex that's like all these things are adults like adults get to ultimately get to choose and face the consequences of um and there's like something broken in amanda pete's character where she can't uh, she she worries over much about other people breaking rules that she's just traipsing over. I'm not mm-hmm. sure. You know, like if her husband said, uh, came home and like I have been, uh, what have you been doing at work, honey? Oh, I just been doing insider trading. It's cool. We're never <laughs> going to get caught. Like she'd freak out about that, but uh, so yeah. I don't know. She felt that's that's the other thing that kind of like was tickling around that like this character felt very hypocritical. Which there's nothing wrong with writing bad, terrible, hypocritical characters. I just typically yeah. don't spend a lot of time watching it, except for I guess all seven seasons of Mad Men. Maybe I'm a hypocrite, <laughs> right? That's what I'm thinking. Like a, a lot of people in the real world are like these characters, and yes, I, I guess that's the thing that I felt in this episode more than the other three is. Mm-hmm. That these could have been, uh, with the exception of maybe episode two. I think the the cruise thing. Like, I understood a lot of the the emotions and the, you know, fucked up kind of mental processes that go into all of their decisions. Mm-hmm. But but here, I, I definitely get it. 
like I get it. I think a lot of the choices are reprehensible. Um, a lot of these things would be so much easier on you if you just told people. Uh, mm-hmm. So much easier on you if you just avoided a mistake in the first place. Like mm-hmm. those things, I guess, didn't keep me from like understanding the emotional core of this episode, which I enjoyed. Thought it was good. I, I do have one question for you, though. Yes. Uh, well, one big one. Uh, why the why the locker room scene? Like, look, I like looking at naked women. That's not a problem. The problem is it felt weird and just kind of thrown in there for the sake of nudity. Oh, see, I thought this was because I again. I, I saw this as a little bit of a middle middle aged woman's crisis, and going past all these women, some of them younger than her, some of them older than her, some of them very pregnant, some of them you know, like like all hmm. these different bodies, and she was kind of I don't know, like I, I got the feeling that like like in so much of the other episode, she's judging, like you know okay. this woman who's pregnant, and that made a reminder of her daughter, and she kind of has like a little face of, uh, and then a woman walks past with pierced, like she's. Like her age, but she got pierced nipples, and she's like, uh, you know, like, oh, what's this? And you know, then the other girl kind of like giving her, and I like there, I, I felt like there was this all like she was. And maybe that's the 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 thing that really pegged my hypocrisy alarm is that she judges the world so much and other people's behavior, yet, mm-hmm. you know, she herself is kind of like weirdly giving herself a pass. Yeah. I don't know she's like protected her like she's protect she she like there's a lot of scenes of her protecting herself from you know getting taken advantage like I'm gonna you know not leave my person as taxi cab drivers because this I don't want to do this because I read this magazine that that and I don't you know and 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 also um I why does everyone hate uh her son-in-law's parents I don't know I mean it is a neat trick that you cast this uh th- this this lady that um I'm trying to think uh Mary Kay Place um she is c- kind of made a career of playing these overbearing obnoxious but well-meaning mothers and she kind of turn try does that in the little bit that she is but like still she seemed like the the non-crazy one in comparison to Amanda Pete and uh you know when I see um, like when I see her leading up to this where she has gotten in this fight with these young people and she is treated this cab driver like a like a like a like a piece of shit uh like I don't know maybe she's the proverbial like I got in mind it like and again this is supposed to be the worst day of her life I guess I just got in mind that she's just like the proverbial asshole that goes out the door and every person she meets is a, just a nightmare to deal with. And maybe mm-hmm. it's because she's the nightmare. Yeah, I think so. It's some weird, like self-loathing kind of thing. So I, uh, like I said, I, I, uh, it's interesting because I was, I, yeah, I thought that you'd hate this episode too. And we could just talk about all the reasons we hate about it. The fact that you like would, so where would you judge this as far uh, cuz i think it's fair to say that you have been um none of the episodes have really caught your fancy yeah they've been kind of droll experiences is this the is this the one that's like oh i kind of get the romanovs now or is it just the one that you did you, do you, would you say you like this the most or yeah I, um i would say i probably like number 2 the most and then this and then maybe 3 and then 1 okay um so far this it has not like hit the top, you know. It hasn't gone up and rang the bell or anything. 
Right. It's, it's not that good. Uh, no, I'm just saying in relation to the others. Yeah, in relation to the others, this is this is probably the second best one so far for me, personally. Mm-hmm. We we kind of talked a little bit about um, there's a couple things that we visited in just passing, um, but I want to talk a little bit more of the fantasy sequence. Mm-hmm. We talk about this on Better Call Saul a lot, but anytime you do this, it's kind of important to give the viewers some clues that it's happening. Uh, and in, in this episode, when Julia is kind of fantasizing about the past, they have a completely different, like, palette to those flashback sequences to let you know. And it's good because I didn't think that they picked particularly good young Amanda Peets and John Slattery's to portray these. In fact, the first time it happened, huh. if it weren't for the context of her literally doing the Wayne's World, <laughs> like, I wouldn't know it was a flashback. And I felt like it was kind of bullshit to do the fantasy sequence and build this and it's a really long and there was no like nothing to kind of tip us off i thought it was bull i felt if i felt like i was jerked around when i realized that it had happened yeah and in fact i was confused i'm like but wait a second i just watched her put on the and then when she Mm -hmm. came out and her husband's watching jeopardy i'm like okay i I see what's happened (laughs) but i felt like it was a manipulation of the audience what did you think uh yeah I i definitely felt a twinge of that um when i watched it and then you know, after watching the episode and reflecting on it, I guess I came around to the idea that you need to you need to understand, I guess, what she would wish for in that scenario. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, and I think it's important the fact that she doesn't just come out and we don't get a rehash of that scene. And it maybe it goes a different place, maybe it doesn't. But she very much wishes that that could happen, and yet she's unwilling to even attempt it. Right. I think that's the important thing that comes out of that. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm with you. I felt a little bit ripped off when I when I got done watching what was a beautiful, I thought, emotionally acted scene. Yeah, yeah, and it wouldn't surprise me too to know that like the guy had suspected or what. I mean, I, I don't. Uh, I, I guys, I was completely buying all the emotional parts. So then. You know, that's the other thing, I guess, that bugged me when we snap back from the fantasy sequence and she's resigned, like, well, that can never happen. I'm, Mm -hmm. like, kind of screaming, why? Yeah. Why does this seem like something that can't ever happen? And, uh, you know, that's the the thing that bugged me. Because, again, it's just her... It feels like she's... I don't know. What's the... Yeah. She feels like she's catastrophizing but in the wrong direction. Like she just had a fantasy of how everything could go right. And then she comes back and just immediately dismisses that. Whereas all of her fantasies Mm -hmm. about all the things that can go wrong, like, Oh, your husband's in Singapore because he's delayed a business trip three weeks because of your crazy pregnancy. Like he's a monster because he might have to give blood. (laughs) Like that's the shit you're worried about. And it's, but it, it bugged me. I also wanted to cover the ground of you seem very sure that the daughter, the final scene, the daughter actually knows her who who her true father is. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's what the final scene is about. Uh, okay. Uh, what? Because I think I, I, I agree with you, but I'm not sure why. Because the only thing, like, there's maybe a knowing look between her daughter and her at the end of that conversation because she said, I love you, too. Um. And then maybe that she knew, like she knew that she'd have to call Daniel from the like, I, yeah, I, I guess that's pretty obvious. I mean, the fact that she called Daniel for her, like, yeah. 
I mean, it's it's the the ending of that is I think undeniable. Yeah, uh, she she makes the phone call, hands the phone to her mom, listens to her say "I love you too," mm-hmm. uh, and then get like they look at each other and nod, like they know she knows. So what's the? Let me ask you this: what is what what is the point of that scene supposed to be? The fact that Amanda Pete has been silly to do this much worrying. The fact that. Uh, it kind of calls it kind of belies Daniel's comment of being only the creepy uncle because if the daughter, you know, see recognizes him as more than that in her mom's life, then that probably means she's been more than that in her life too. Mm-hmm. A combination of all those things, something else. Well, I think it's it's you know wrapped up pretty obviously in the gallstone operation that she has to have right. Yeah. To get that removed, and and the gallstone is very much representative of this feeling of guilt that she's carried with her. Um, mm. And I think this is the moment where she can begin to heal from that because I don't want to look at this scene and say, oh, yeah, no, her daughter knows everything's fine now because that's right. not true. Her right. husband still doesn't know. Uh, there's still a lot of shit to deal with on that end. But like this is the moment where she can finally say, OK, I've had this traumatic experience and I need to actually start healing from the pain that I felt for 20 years, you know? Mm. Right. Well, what else do you want to talk about? Uh, the Romanoffs. So th- okay, every episode yeah. of the Romanoffs, surprise, surprise, is tied to people who think they're part of the Romanoff family. Uh, Eric in this episode is the one who is a Romanoff descendant. That's a man's husband, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, and interestingly, there are no other Romanoffs in this episode. You know, that like the the ones who think who we think are Romanoffs at the beginning, the daughter, the granddaughter, none of them are. Um, that part of the line is certainly not existing anymore. Uh, and, and I don't think has, has any Romanoff spouse ever taken the Romanoff name in this show? <laughs> Cause didn't know mm. Wiley and Carrie Boucher say that they, neither one of them did. Uh, I'm not sure about Carrie. Def- I think Wiley for sure. Cause why would he, that, that that's like, if you're going to uh-huh. observe, I mean, there, it's, it's, Certainly not tradition for the man to take the woman's name. Uh, tradition, increasingly, it seems like that tradition's kind of, um, I know people like are, are whatever. It used to be kind of avant-garde thing if you refuse to take your husband's name or like hyphenated. And now it's kind of like, I don't think anyone cares. Um, or maybe yeah, just, except, I, don't. I mean, the Romanoff should, right? Like if, right. if they're all about, they have their own societies and shit. No, but it's funny that, ha- that, that you have this like kind of cuckoo relationship where the Romanoff name will be will be carried on by a non-Romanoff. Yeah. And I also thought, like, as I was sitting there and making my my notes over to end credits, I was thinking, this isn't the first time. Like, like how many of these supposed, like, bloodlines, these old blue bloodlines, have this kind of shit going, like, this kind of Jamie and Cersei lannister going on? Right. You know? Like, it's kind of funny how... Um, how how much like stock that we put in for just centuries and millennia of this royal blood and how you know for some of them take it more or less serious but the romanoffs as portrayed in this this show still do mm-hmm. but in reality it's like it's it's how many of the romanoffs are even still legitimate romanoffs at this point yeah that's a fair question i just thought it was interesting um the the show at this point seems to be building the pattern of none of the people who marry into the romanoffs want anything to do mm-hmm. with the romanoff legacy you know yeah it does seem like that like another thesis of the show is there is this this psychic 
trauma that's happened to the Romanovs because of their the upheaval and the, because of things were ripped away from them. But yeah, you know, I, I don't I don't know how much stock there that I've taken that either. I was also kind of thought it was weird that uh, Daniel's character, like he's made his bones writing about the Romanovs because his best friend is a Romanov. I think so. Yeah, they mentioned some consulting that, tra- that Eric did. Does that track for you? Um, it it maybe depends on when they met, how long they've been friends. Because I could see like, you know, you're in you're in school. Uh, maybe he wanted yeah. to be a writer, right? Uh, um, and you're in school and you're thinking, oh fuck, what am I going to do for this project? What's oh, the most wait. interesting hook I can think of? Yeah, Eric's Romanoff. Maybe I could just interview him, you know, and condense that down into a few chapters. Yeah, and then it just so blows maybe up from there. That's that's what you've had success. It's like. Yeah, you know we we didn't envision ourselves being uh, successful television podcasters. It's just that's the <laughs> podcast that that was most successful, and here we are years later yeah. talking about the Romanovs. If I knew a Romanov, maybe it'd be the Romanovs, uh, bald right. Romanovs. Right. If I was best friends with Matthew Wien- uh, Weiner, I'd I'd write a tele- I'd write a show about a dynasty of showrunners called the Wieners. <laughs> and <Yep. laughs> little Wieners. And it oh, would be, boy. it'd be like, uh, that, uh, what was that hot, that, that, uh, Seth, Seth Rogen hot dog movie? The sausage party? Sausage. Yeah. It'd be like sausage party. It'd, it'd huh. be that animation. All of the main characters would be wieners and they're <laughs> wow. producing television and that's uh-huh. it. Everybody, it. It's like a Bojack Horseman thing where everyone's wieners except for, uh, the not people that aren't, you know, we can still make that happen. There's yeah. nothing stopping it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, so that's all I've got to talk about. Do you have any other closing thoughts? No, I think that's about it. Before we get into feedback, I'd like to talk about the club, uh, club.baldmove.com. That is a way for listeners to directly support our podcasts. And that's important because it allows us to cover some of the smaller shows uh, that are off the major networks, such as the Romanovs, the one that you're enjoying right now. And it also allows us to uh, be full-time podcasters and give you more more quality content. Uh, there's so many bonus features you get for joining the club. You can go to club.baldmove.com and preview them right now. But there are ad-free feeds. There are ways to watch us record the podcast on video. There's just entirely new shows like Quit Your Pitching and Lunch with Jim and Aaron that we do just for club members. You can get a free sample of all those at club.baldmove.com. Uh, you can also get a free 30-day trial just for signing up. Again, club.baldmove.com. Let's get into feedback, which you can send to TV at baldmove.com, or we have a Romanoffs thread on our forums, forums at baldmove.com. First up, Dan from Manchester. At first, I was on the fence about the Romanoffs as I couldn't wrap my head around the concept of people being so messed up about a generational suffering. But as the season goes on, I think I'm starting to understand how something that happened 100 years ago could still be on your mind and how you feel you had a birthright taken away. I do think this show would work better if it was about a single family of Romanovs that were all bitter and messed up rather than the format we have now. I think Weiner could get his concept across a lot more that way. Um, it's so funny to see that this is the episode that and I'm, I'm taking Dana as, as uh, face value because why wouldn't I? But to me, it's so bizarre to see this one where I think the Romanovs plot was so far off into the side. This is the mm-hmm. one where it kind of clicks together. <laughs> Yeah, that is weird because I didn't feel any Romanoff stink on this episode at all. <laughs> Romanoff stink, yeah. <laughs> Romanoff aroma. Uh, uh-huh. y- yeah, I, I. Uh, to me, this was the, it. It. 
the Romanovs couldn't even mention at all. Like, the Romanovs mm-hmm. were, like, three lines in the script. And, like, whatever damage Julia's got, I certainly don't think it's around being a Romanov. No. By marriage. But uh, also, another interesting data point, he dances, I would like to mention I'm 29 years old now and is a huge fan of Mad Men that started watching the show on air at 21. So you guys weren't, in fact, the youngest members of the audience. Lies. Yeah. Lies, I, I don't believe it. <laughs> uh, this whole email. So all emails a pack of lies, Dan. Just come on. <laughs> be like Julia. Just be like Julia. Just just get it out there. Um, I know I, I we got every time in Mad Men where we talked about how we were the youngest people watching it, we'd get like a teenager or something. So, yeah, I get it. I get it. I was like 14 watching Northern Exposure. Had no business watching that show. Can't make a joke on this podcast without getting emails, huh? No, you cannot. You cannot. You're going to get... I'll, cr- I'll you're gonna keep get, that in mind. You're going to get correct. No, it's going to be a much serious podcast from, from Jim going forward. Yeah, no more jokes. Next up, my jam. Uh, I watched this episode, but didn't click for me. The first three kept me engaged in watching, but I found my attention wandering in this one. I think Amanda Pete's character was not relatable, and she played it a bit odd. I was getting hint of a screwball comedy vibe from her. Uh, uh, her role as a pushy, entitled woman. But no one was laughing. The other characters just basically said she's a bitch or they let it go. And the daughter was kind of unlikable for me as well. But I have been enjoying the anthology overall, and there were some good things about this episode. In spite of my estimate of her performance, uh, I liked seeing Amanda Peet again and John Slattery and Diane Lang for the brief time she was in the episode. And downtown, downtown New York looked so great. It made me want to visit. Yeah, uh, the, a whiner gave uh, New York the full Paris treatment. Mm, yeah, made it seem like a, a like just a really great place to be, uh, but I yeah, Madjam, I I figure I I feel every bit of your feedback because I got the whole screwball comedy. It's like a, it's it's like a screwball comedy except for instead of being like playing up the laughs, they played up the drama. It's it was too funny and too odd for me to take seriously as a drama, and is way too glib about everything for me to take it serious as a drama and it just kind of lived in that tonal no man's land for me um but uh as far as yeah i mean and that 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 worked against my enormous esteem that i have for pete and slattery and like diane lang like did, was she like is she i wonder if she's going to be in another future episode because otherwise uh, maybe it's just like she parachuted in for two or three sentences and it was out. Like, I don't want to mm-hmm. say it's a criminal misuse of her because whatever, but kind of it, it's it's a big name and a really well liked, uh, like like a really likable actor brought in for a fra- fairly forgettable role. That didn't no. usually happen in Mad Men. Yeah, no, I'm I'm with you. She she might show up later. Uh, and specifically in those scenes, I, I think that's the one where she's at the restaurant or whatever out, out on the the patio mm-hmm. and she's trying to charge her cell phone like i i think matthew weiner has an idea in his head of how funny he wants to be and how much drama he wants to inject and story be damned tone be damned he's gonna jam that in there and i feel like this episode the number one complaint i had is about the tone and the lack of the fun in order to pull off what he's trying to pull off we have to fundamentally understand these characters and with this format, you just don't get in their headspace enough to do that. Yeah. Very curious that this is the shortest episode so far, too, because I felt like there could have been... What this what this thing needed is about 20 minutes of showing Amanda Pete and her husband having everything totally together. 
Yeah. Like you should just be able to get that this is a clockwork couple and everything like are just finely meshed teeth and it's it's turning like he's got this high powered legal career or whatever the fuck it's got and she's got this philanthropy thing and then her her daughter arrives in New York and they're gonna have brunch and that's where the wheels come off you start mm-hmm. seeing the cracks but like not getting any of that and that would have been great front. too because then you could say oh well when she isn't constantly reminded of her infidelity and this huge mistake. It kind of goes to the back of her mind and she's able to uh, pretend like she has some normal life. Right. But then, Oh, her daughter shows up. It reminds her much like all of the scenes we saw of her touching a doorknob or smelling a perfume or whatever. Remind her of that moment. This could have been the bigger reminder, her daughter herself. Yeah. Um, Moving on to Demick. He wonder or they wonder did Weiner just basically recycle a brunt the brunt scene with Roger and his daughter Margaret uh, from the episode I for, or uh, from episode one of season seven of Mad Men. The dynamic and tension were so similar between Julia and Ella. He even used the same word serene to describe both Margaret and Ella. Do you remember that scene? Not not in any kind of detail. No, I was thinking of other Roger moments that tied to this episode but i felt like there there's a blend of that there's also a little there's a lot of um uh uh, trudy is that was that pete campbell's wife's name Uh uh-huh uh there's a lot of trudy and her and uh amanda pete's daughter you know this kind of like yeah likable and beautiful but kind of shallow socialite kind of role um and thinks that that's like well you know she but doesn't feel like there's anything to uh, there's nothing like, I don't know. That's, that's such a weird character. Like, I don't know. I guess there's all kinds of ways to rebel. And if your parents have raised you to be a socially conscious person and you just reject all that and, and without any kind of ref- reflection over how privileged it is, maybe that would great, but mm-hmm. I don't know. Cause I, I also, I think I've always understood one of the goals of feminism to be that women should be free to be any kind of woman they want, including a housewife. Yeah, so, no, we talked about that on the uh, Sharp Objects podcast. Right. There was an episode where it was really brought to the fore. Right. Uh, it, it's super weird to see, and that's like one of those things, like maybe that's an early annoyance. Is like, does Matthew Weiner understand the goals of feminism to have like supposedly a, a feminist, social, you know, socially conscious woman to be this brittle and fragile and, and rigid in her ways? I don't know. Uh, yeah, I think he might be doing something there to say, you know, that there is that hypocrisy within her because, like, yes, th- normally this is depicted the other way around, right? Where the very conservative mother says, oh, you shouldn't be out there doing the things you're doing because right. blah, blah, blah. You're looking at all you're missing out. And that's what, yeah. Right. Here, it's the very uh, not like housewife conservative mother. It's the opposite. Mm-hmm. The daughter is that way. Right. Um, he- here's the other thing uh, related to Mad Men that I noticed about this episode is like, John Slattery is essentially playing Roger in the later seasons of Mad Men with Joan. And yeah. their their daughter, is it a daughter, a son that they have together? Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, son. Uh, yeah, son that they have together. I, I felt like that worked much better than it did here because of everything we knew about Roger and Joan up to right. that point. Right. And it's also weird because, um, you know, obviously Roger... Uh, or uh, Roger. Obviously, John's gotten a little bit older since his Mad Men days, so it kind of. I, I understand it doesn't work as a characterization, but I. Now that he's looking more and more like an aging playboy, like uh-huh. I do feel. 
that that his face kind of brought to the role this kind of like essential sadness of like you know that I've watched this other man live my life and been helpless to, I just stood by and let it happen like he's now mm-hmm. old enough to start having regrets like I'm not going to like I've got this cold relationship with my wife and I don't have any children and maybe that's something I wanted and I couldn't appreciate that when I was younger and not something I can't have like mm-hmm. that it works because he's just you know a little older now yeah uh, it was weird because I also did. I thought him and Amanda Peet had zero chemistry. In fact, huh. when okay. they first met, like I thought they were posing him as the grandfather. <laughs> and I'm like, wait a second, John Slider is only like eight years older than Amanda Peet. What the hell? Uh, uh, but then it's like when they did the flashback, I'm like, oh, they're supposed to be like romantically connected, and I felt like they had a fraternal or paternal type of affection and i didn't i never i guess bought the 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 love story which maybe is why they they i don't know really went for broke selling the 50 shades aspect of their intense sexual chemistry in their youth (laughs) what what is it about john slattery i'm I, i look at this from a meta aspect and i'm like is john slattery destined to be his character in this episode where like he looks back and says, I was always the guy cast as the aging playboy or <laughs> or as the guy who was like, always the lover, never the father kind of thing. Mm, mm. Like, it, is it something about his appearance, something about his mannerisms? Is it like, what is it where he plays this kind of character over and over again? I don't know. There is something about how ridiculously... I, I, I think he's ridiculously good looking and also because of his... Uh, preternaturally gray hair, dis- uh, charming and distinguished. Yeah, that lets him kind of be like this George Clooney type, where he is, you know, uh, he could be a CEO, or he could be a, a playboy, or he could be a father, or even a grandfather. There's like he he could do he could do a lot, and you know, also he's got a successful career as a director and producer. So like. I don't know if he's. Cur- I don't. I, I, if, if if being cursed to John Slattery, then I could use a little bit of that curse. <laughs> Fair to be perfect. To be f- perfectly honest. Yeah. Uh, but uh, let us. Uh, do you have anything else you want to say, or should we move on? No, let's keep going. Uh, actually, we're not even done with the Dimmick's email. Since I'm supposed to, I think we're supposed to see Julie as unlikable. I agree. Uh, however, we're also looking on possibly one of the most stressful days of her life: the decades-long lie about her daughter's biological father. Her child-making choices she couldn't understand, uh, her child-making life choices that she couldn't understand, and aging. I think there's examples of her being a decent, caring person in general. Out of all the people on the street, she's the one stopping and helping the mother with the stroller navigating a revolving door. She continued to work at the homeless outreach organization after she was getting physically assaulted, etc. You know, that's a good point. The whole... That scene, I think Matthew Weiner was cognizant of what we were talking about, and he threw in that early scene. That's our first real introduction to Amanda once she uh, leaves her apartment and into the world, right? She helps that young mother struggling with getting a baby thing through the door. Mm -hmm. Uh, Maybe he's like, I did my job. Everyone knows that Julia... Uh, Juliet, Julie, Juliet uh, is is a likable, good person, and now I can have her proceed to act a fool the rest of the episode. Uh-huh. But if so, I felt like that's a little bit of a miscalculation. No, it's funny because I, I think you hit it like we needed actually a longer episode. This is the mm. shortest episode yet. We've complained about how long these episodes are, and yet mm. this is the first one that feels like it needed that amount of time, and it didn't get it. 
Yeah, it just was so missing, what the fuck? A few, missing a few character beats that that uh, would have uh, fleshed it out and, and gotten the impact I think he's looking for. Uh, I have a feeling that Eric was right, that Daniel never really grew up. If he wanted to be more involved in Ella's life, there was ways to be more than a creepy fake, fake uncle. However, the look on his face when he watched Eric walk Ella down the aisle was so heartbreaking that she couldn't help but feel for him. Julia's imaginary confession scene is my favorite of the episode. I could see her rehearsing the speech she had in her head over and over for 20 years. From what she knew of her husband and because of what a decent, loving person he was, she believed he would forgive her and still love her. But nonetheless, she never had the courage to be completely honest with him. How do you live with a lie so big? And the grand scheme of things, whoever Ella's father was probably makes very little difference. But to Julia, the weight of her betrayal, deception, and guilt is almost crushing, which is something that Weiner does best. I mean, there's certainly something in that, right? That Oh, yeah. Because I imagine the way Julia does is like when she gets busy in her regular life, this all fades into the background, and she can almost pretend like it never happened. It's only, and it's ironically probably the biggest moments, the happiest moments of a parent's life, when your child graduates school, when your child gets married, when your child is having the child of their own. And as contrast, we see the son-in-law's parents gushing about how this is going to be the happiest day of your life, because this is like Uh all love and fun and none of the discipline and worry and... Yet it's times like these where Daniel's character starts to muscle in and wants to, and then she just has to relive all this horror. So like, you know, all the red letter days are these black letter days for her. That's a really good point. And there's a line in there in the fantasized confession about, you know, the, the mistake, the lie was big then it's so much bigger now. And when you look at that moment, about what's about to happen here with her daughter being pregnant, about to give birth to yet another generation that she would have to confess to not being Eric's. Mm-hmm. How much bigger is that lie getting right now? You know? Yeah. Or you've got a whole generation of people that are going to believe this lie. I mean, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's compounding. And I mean, that's, like I said, interesting piece of analysis. I just, uh, and it's something that, some of this stuff makes me intellectually like the episode more in retrospect, but again, I wish I wish some of that stuff was was better. Like that point was better made, uh, so so it was more self evident and and something I was able to appreciate. Because I was just like, yeah, at the one third mark, I was so turned off by as I was clinging for a character <laughs> that, and I'm like, oh, John Slatter's here to save the day, and then no, it turns out that not because that's the other thing is like how. How big of an asshole do you have to be to demand that you get a place at this table at this stage in the game? You know, like like you've been the creepy uncle this whole time, hmm. and now at this big day for everybody, like, and it's your best friend. He's getting this like first grandchild. Like, well, how big of yeah. a how did, uh, how, how how big of a narcissist asshole do you be? Like, but what about my feelings? Take that shit to your therapist, man. Well, he's I, I mean, he's been doing. He's been yeah. doing nothing about that. I mean, he's he's emotionally constipated over his daughter, right? Like, yeah. it's been 20 years. He has done everything that she has asked to hide this secret because it's sure. not really his place to blow up her life Except if for she today. doesn't want to. Yeah. But but it's coming to a head. Like, he can't, he can't stand by, watch another generation of his family be born without being a part of it. Mm-hmm. So I get it, and you're not wrong either that, you know this is a terrible time to be interjecting and demanding a seat at the table. But, mm-hmm. you know, some, sometimes the heart wants what the heart wants, right? 
Yeah, and, and I guess the, the head be damned. Yeah, and then I guess my question would be, or what? Like, you know, when you said, like, he's not going to step, step by, it's like, but, yeah, but you got to. Like, you know, a lot of that... Um... Well, he's desperate. I mean, he's an old man. He's yeah. he's going through the same aging crisis, you know, this midlife thing that she's talking about. Sure, sure. Uh, like, I, I, I just, I keep coming back to, um, well, you just, you fucked up, you know, like there's yeah. no, there's no way at this point in time to unfuck this situation. So now like, you know, what are you going to do? But then again, his whole character is about arrested development. So right, I, I right. mean, there's, there's a very good chance that he would get what he wants and becomes a big part of this family's life. And the second someone had to depend on him, he'd be like, well, time to do a Romanoff cruise. And then just like disappear. Like, like <laughs> sure. the proverbial go out to get a bag of, uh, get a pack of smokes and, and never come back so uh, i don't know there's just something that was hard like, like with both of these both these characters just seem so primarily self-centered that's the thing that always bugged me mm-hmm. is that none of none of these none of this anguish or pain was coming because of what anything else had done except for the feelings that they were having and i get it you can also just easily say well but that's another way of saying that she's afraid to hurt her, hurt her husband and she's afraid to hurt her daughter and all that. But, mm-hmm. you know, she's in the unique position where she can contain all that suffering to one human body, her own. <laughs> right. Until it rebels and kills her. Yeah. Yeah. But then, you know, she's, yeah, that's, uh, that's, 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 uh, that's not the appropriate penalty to pay for that. Uh, so I don't the, know what I'm saying. The sweet release. Wasn't there something about that in here? Yes. It's when the credits started, uh, <laughs> started rolling. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, that's all we got for feedback. You can send it, you send in more to TV at baldmove.com or you can get in on the forums, forums.baldmove.com. We'll be back with another episode of, uh, Romanoff's next week. Same as Weiner. Until then, I'm Aaron. And I'm Jim. See you later.